Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. The following is an interview with me by David Welch of Awaken.com, which we did in May of 2016. There were some audio issues uh, on the Skype recording. We have cleaned them up as best we can, um, and you'll be able to hear everything pretty easily. As you might guess from the website we have, um, my first question is, uh, what does it mean to awaken? You know, over the many years that I've considered these matters, that understanding has shifted with time about what it means to be awake in this world, you know. I think initially for me, it would have had to do with my own coming to terms with my own crazy mind and kind of having some space around it in which I could exist, you know, the quiet that contains the mind rather than being lost in my stream of neurotic thought. I would have said, I would have answered the question like that for many years, having to do with my own personal experience of greater well-being greater clarity with regard to my own processes of of mind and heart. But I would say that what that that means to me these days, and for some time, has more to do with an awakening to what is going on in my time on this planet. In other words, we're living in a very intense historical moment. It is possible, and I don't mean to start out this interview with a bunch of scary thoughts, but it's possible that we may be some of the last humans to exist. And we're watching a huge destruction of life, pretty much a record-breaking speed of extinctions. So what it means for me to be awake in this time is to have a context that I'm living in a certain huge context of a lot of suffering on the on the earth, a greater increasing awareness of that of that suffering and what it means to hold it in the heart and what it means to face one's own extinction and the possibility of our species extinction. So I would say that in addition to my own you know, long time need to find space and quiet around the troubling aspects of my personal life. <laughs> That's one form of awakening, the that kind of imperturbability of deep peace. That is now being needed for me, in my case, and I think in the case of a lot of people, in facing what's going on on the planet. I have to agree with you. Uh, I'm of the opinion that climate change and a lot of the uh, challenges Mother Earth is facing right now is due to the masculine running amok. In short, I believe that the planet is too patriarchal. So uh, my question is, how do we get society to embrace and incorporate the divine feminine, uh, i.e., how do we get the planet to be more balanced? It's as though there's a race now between the forces of goodness and kindness and generosity and clarity and the forces of destruction. 
And I don't know how we can speed anything up on our side of the equation. I just don't know. I see that there is a flowering of consciousness. I see that many, many, many people, perhaps more than ever, are, you know, awakening in terms of being aware of all the things we've just said. I don't know how it can go any faster. Everything is going exponentially faster. Uh, The awakening is going faster, but the destruction is going faster as well. I think all we can do is continue, you know, kind of carry on with what we're doing and to do it for its own sake, to do it for standing on the side of what we see as the side of the angels, the side of goodness. Stand on that side no matter what comes down. There's a line I love to quote from W.S. Merwin, on the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel that that's what it comes down to. It's almost like living in hospice. You know, you just it, it, suddenly things get uber clear and you realize you just want to give away the story. You want to be loving. You want to forgive. You want to be easy in yourself. You want to, you know, be gentle on the earth, even if in the end it may not make much difference it makes a difference in your heart in the now. How is Buddhism a process of awakening? Well, let me just clarify this. I am no longer a practitioner of Buddhism, by the way. I haven't since 1991. Yeah, I know. I don't know why I always get... Categorized that way, I'm I'm kind of very very post mindfulness. <laughs> certainly, there is you know there is a place for for the wave of mindfulness practice that's going on worldwide. I see it as a very sort of beginner level technique, very mindy. Frankly, it's very mind focused, so that you have a little mental task, kind of like mental notation, which serves a a purpose and has its place. There can come a point, though, where that becomes a bit tedious and and also a little distancing. Uh, so my recommendation is not so much to do that for very long. I'm but, sorry, not, not to do mindfulness? And, and what exactly is mindfulness? Well, mindfulness, the classic way that mindfulness has been taught is it's basically mental notation. You know, it's noting noting the breath, noting the sensations, noting the thoughts, noting pain, noting smells. You know, you're, you're in a kind of mental notation. It serves a function in that it, it allows people to get some concentration with their mind and to get a little bit of a handle on, in a sense, directing their attention. That does help uh, initially. But after a point... You know, after a point, you don't want to be spending your life in this kind of notation or even spending very much time in a retreat or anywhere in that kind of notation. It can come in handy. It's nice to have in your toolbox, like if you're at the dentist or any number of things where you kind of just need to really focus on your breath or just get a grip on, you know, what's going on in the very instant you're experiencing it. But beyond that, I would say as a way of life, 
it's a little tedious, I found, and a lot of people have found. So I did that practice for 17 years, way early on. As I say, I stopped in 1991. I began in 1974. So I, I did it a long time. And then I haven't really done it since, except for these few <laughs> exceptions, like at the dentist. I kind of note what's going on when I'm just experiencing those kinds of sensations. Or, or if I have pain, if I'm in a particular circumstance, I'll go into a little mindfulness practice on the pain. But I think there's another way that's much more relaxed to begin to habituate in. And that is more a kind of choiceless awareness, as Krishnamurti called it, a floating awareness, an ease of being. It's much more what Eckhart Tolle talks about, a kind of just the simplicity of presence and experiencing yourself as, as what I like to call an awake animal you know, just into your senses, into the embodiment, very much living fully in your taste of this existence right now. I've observed this and had the experience myself over many, many years of leading retreats. The more one is able to be in that kind of relaxed flow, somehow the more insight arises, gentleness, love, tenderness, discernment, everything arises organically. In fact, my book, Passionate Presence, is about this very point. It's, it's about the qualities that arise naturally when you're in that kind of relaxation and when that becomes more of a, you know, the habit, the default setting in your life. What, what, is, what, is, what has happened in your life um, that you feel is significant in your own awakening? I have always been a kind of keen student of mind. I began asking questions really when I was about 12 years old. I don't know why, but I mean, maybe we could say I had a really rough childhood, which I did. But whatever it was, however, I, I was just made that way. I, was, I had great interest in wanting to peel back Oz's curtain and see what is this about, you know? And how does one survive it in, with it, your sanity intact, you know? I was always aware of suffering. I've had a lot of loss in my life, a lot of loss and continual loss. I think I'm also hypersensitive to loss and to emotion and feelings. So I had a great propensity for finding that kind of information. I became a seeker a long, long time ago. I would, you know, voraciously read. And I was living in, you know, Virginia in the South, and there wasn't much around. So it was very hard in those days. I mean, it's hard to imagine in these days of the internet that information would be hard to come by. But in those days, as you probably know, it was. It was there was nothing around, you know. You just had to ferret it out the best you could. But I became, you know, very intensely a seeker, even in my late teens. And in my early 20s, I was already studying basically the philosophies of Asia. And by the time I was, um, what, 22, I was practicing Buddhist meditation. So, you know, that was the trajectory. So, yes, I, I, I guess the answer to the question is, 
it's just sort of my nature and it continues. And for instance, now I find myself studying climate science and I have been delving into that with the same kind of intensity in the last two or three years that I was reading and studying Dharma for many, many, many years, decades. Now I'm very much wanting to know exactly what the movements of the earth sciences are doing in this time. Would, would you mind uh, um, giving us the definition of Dharma? You said that, again, we were breaking up. Did you say the definition of Dharma? Uh, yes. Yes. So <clears throat> it's a Sanskrit word. It essentially in the translations that you mostly see, it's usually, it's usually referred to as the truth or the law. What I like to think of that, of the definition as, is an underlying harmony like finding an underlying harmony through any circumstance, almost like a stream that runs deeper under which the activities or the problems or whatever float. So it's like, it's like this undercurrent of harmony, well-being, clarity. Sometimes, you know, you can think of the word the Tao. I think it's a similar kind of sense that I, I have with the word dharma. Does it have anything to do with a seva or service? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, um, you know, as I, as I said before, when one is attuned in that way and when your own experience of presence is strong and habitual, it doesn't have to be constant. It would be nice if it were, but it doesn't have to be. There is an automatic arising of tenderness that comes with that. And with that arising of tenderness comes this impulse to help out wherever you can. It, it arises very, very organically without it being kind of a should or something that you feel should be connected to a realization of some sort. It arises really directly from the heart. It's what you want to do when you're in your clear space. You know, you want to be light on the earth. You want to be kind to others. You want to help where you can. You're happy to be generous because it just feels good. So, yes, service comes as a byproduct of this uh, understanding. Uh, do you have daily rituals or practices that you follow or would like to recommend um, to our awakened community? In my own case, I I live a very quiet life, David. You know, I I, I you know I'm alone a lot. Uh, kind of, it's a kind of living meditation, really. And uh, at present, I live in a very sort of country-ish place. My yard often has a little herd of deer in it. <laughs> So it's very, um, it's almost like living in a retreat space. So I don't really have to do anything extra to kind of remind myself of, of those more quiet moments. But I am aware that lots of people have much more hectic lives. People have jobs and families and often barely a moment to themselves, you know. And I feel so much compassion for people who are, living that way and who in some sense maybe have to live that way in order to support their families. 
So I do recommend finding, if you can, just some moments in the day where you can just touch base with your deep waters. You know, whether it's go for a walk in a quiet place, or maybe there's a park near where you work, or even if it's just a bath at the end of the day, you know, one of my girlfriends um, who's a psychiatrist once told me that, you know, she'd come home from a, a long day of hearing people's real problems, you know, and she'd run a bath and put some essential oils in the tub and light candles, and it would just be her ritual of just going to that, what my teacher used to call the well of nothingness, where there's just nothing happening, just just reset, you know? And so each of us might have our own way of tapping into that well. Some, some people it might just be playing with the puppy <laughs> or watching the birds or whatever your thing might be. I do recommend having some portion of your day great or small, whatever you can afford, to tap into that. Because sometimes even just a few minutes of that can calm you down, can remind you, can open your heart and clear your mind. So yes, it's very important. And it's also, I don't think there's some particular formula. You know, I think that each of us is unique in terms of how we might tap into that. As you do, I have a farm in Tennessee where when I'm working in my office, I look out and I see the deer, I see 60 wild turkeys, I see a raccoon going by, um, I see my horses. Uh, I do spend a lot of time alone, too, so um, I really resonate with, with what you just said. It's such a privilege to live among wildlife, you know, as, a, as an almost constant reminder of beingness that is not, you know, wrapped up in thought and yet is fully being, you know? It's not as if the deer aren't tasting the grass or that the birds aren't tasting the seeds. They are tasting it. That's why they go for them. You know, they're having experience. Maybe it's more limited than ours, but nevertheless, there's this strong experience of beingness and presence that that the creatures are experiencing. And we can be reminded of how simple that can be. I think one of the great illnesses of our species is the incredible disembodiment, the separation from, from nature and from the slower rhythms and the obsessive amount of living in one's heads and on screens and in constant thrusting forward into future ideas and desires, all of that is um, very dangerous. You know, it's, it's producing exactly what we've got. And, you know, to turn it the other direction, as you've just described, to just look up from your window and see turkeys in the yard and just have a reminder of other types of rhythms in which we have lived for many centuries and which worked out pretty well in terms of sustainability. It's very important. And this is a form of awakening that I like to talk about. Isn't it astounding how so many people don't understand that that is a basis for happiness and well-being, you know, 
that actually going the other direction from the speed and the thrusting forward and the desires of more, 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 the other direction lies well-being and happiness and calm and connection. What would you say the purpose of your life is? It was breaking up a little. Uh, was your question, what would you say the purpose of life is? Or the purpose of your life? My life. Huh. I don't really hold it in that kind of concept. I just see it as a kind of unfolding, kind of on its own. I, I don't really have much direction in it. I can only sort of see it in hindsight, the purpose, you know, or the really, really just the unfolding. I'm a little wary of ideas such as purpose. Again, they seem human-centric. And it's a, a concept that it's been bandied about in spiritual circles for many, many years, purpose, finding one's purpose. Uh, but it's not, a, it's not a concept I really particularly resonate with. I kind of go with Jesus's quote, consider the lilies of the field, they toil not. You know, they, that just, we're just here. We're, what I can also say to this question though is, it's very clear to me more and more so as I lose more people in my life that what you leave behind of any value is the love in the hearts of those who you loved and who loved you. That's what gets left of any actual, of any actual um, worth. And so that becomes, you know, that kind of information, that kind of recognition becomes a bit of a motivation, you know, that I think for, especially for we Americans, there's such a pressure to leave your mark and to do something big and to be important, be somebody. And I think it, that impulse also carries over to a kind of posthumous uh, hope as well. But really, what any of us are going to leave of any value is going to be the love in the hearts of those left, left behind who loved us and who we loved. That's what will be treasured, remembered, and passed on in a way, because it's almost like when your well is filled in that way, when love is the essence of what you consider important. And then, let's say, through the death of one of your loved ones, that becomes all the more tender, all the more clear, all the more strong. It's like that then gets past all the people you're interacting with. So when you ask me about, you know, my life in terms of, you know, the influences, let's say. And I, I did say that I've had a lot of loss. I would say that the fire of loss has made me realize how important it is to really, you know, to just say, to use a cliche, to shine your light, you know, and to let light come into you from all those who are shining theirs, to really let that be the primary thing you're up, you're up to in, in this world. If you were going to attempt to describe God, what would you say? You're, yeah, you're, you're breaking up a little bit, but I'm catching every other word. Well, it is also 
Not a concept that I play with much anymore, though I have in the past. I would, you know, use it in the kind of, um, you know, referring to the primordial force, let's say, or the the source of of all existence. Those kinds of, you know, very big sweeping definitions of of God. But I'm reluctant to use that concept at all because it's just so loaded with ideas you know it's just so loaded with conditioned ideas so i tend not to use the word or the concept and even this idea of source and all of these these kinds of ideas as well I, i don't use i'm getting it's all getting very very sort of basic and practical for me you know i'm being very careful in my use of language because i see having led so many events through Dharma dialogues and through retreats, I see how concepts can be tried on and then suddenly they're worn like a cloak and then suddenly they're actually buffering you from the truth. They're, they're, they're becoming a veil. And I've seen this so many times and I'm, I'm, so I'm very, very careful about my use of these kinds of descriptions. I don't have any trouble, though, when I hear somebody using it in a very kind of expansive way, that word, and people do, and, you know, and that's fine. I just gave a talk at a Unity Church this past Sunday, a few days ago, and, you know, prior to and after the talk, there's a lot of hymn singing in which they're they're using the word God, but you do sense that they're using it in this very sort of universal way, which is quite beautiful. So, yeah, I don't, I don't have the kind of... Um, resistance that some of my atheist friends do to that word but i also personally don't use it you know it's not a concept i use so much when i asked tony robbins uh, he said oh that's easy love oh very good i like that one too yeah and i went what good that's that's all we need to say about that (laughs) that's great yes exactly yeah i love that um yeah except that you know then you can just use the word love Um, you know, you don't have to use the word God to say love. You can just use the word love. So, um, yeah, it, it is loaded, as we're saying. I'll close with a stanza from Leonard Cohen, which I love. So come, my friends, be not afraid. We are so lightly here. It is in love that we are made. In love we disappear. This has been In The Deep. To support these podcasts, you can subscribe to this channel on iTunes or post a review there. If you'd like to know more about my work, book a private session, or make a tax-deductible donation for the ongoing production of the podcasts, please visit katherineingram.com. Till next time.